The commencement address will be delivered by William K. Maromo, Trinity Class of 1969. Bill. Well, I like that word uh, power, President Berger Sweeney. And I thank you very much for inviting me to speak here at Trinity today. I thank my former fellow trustees, the faculty, members of the class of 2016, and um, equally important, all of your parents back there. Uh, before I begin, could you please give yourselves and your moms and dads a rousing round of applause? Um, as I stand here today on this beautiful quad, I've been trying to recall precisely how I felt on that day in 1969 when I was seated where you are today. My dad and my mom were seated behind us, and I know that I had high hopes for the future, high hopes that were set against fear and uncertainty about the unknown. I now know, given the benefit of 2020 hindsight, that my four years on this wonderful campus had permanently enriched my life. Trinity's gifts to me included these. Lifelong friendships. Friendships that have grown stronger over the years, despite the distance that separates us. In fact, somewhere out here on the quad, not too far away, Quite a few of my classmates are gathered here, including one friend who came all the way from Laguna Beach, California. Trinity also endowed me with the ability to express myself with clarity, sometimes even fluidity, in writing and in speech. Our professors were peerless teachers who took time to review our work in depth and to talk with us about our lives, our aspirations, and our goals. They were professors like Kenneth Cameron, a world-renowned expert on Henry David Thoreau, whose eagle-eyed critiques of our writing struck fear in the hearts of every freshman in his English class. John Dando, who taught Shakespeare with the dramatic flair of an actor at the Globe Theater in Shakespeare's time. Hugh Ogden, a professor with the soul of a poet and the meticulous editing skills of a copy desk chief at The New Yorker. And Andrew Turnbull, who edited the letters of Scott Fitzgerald and then wrote the preeminent biography of Fitzgerald. On graduation day 1969, I had no job. I'd been accepted at law school, but I knew that if I started law school, there was a possibility that I'd get drafted to serve in Vietnam. One of our classmates, um, a year before ours, Buddy Kupka, had already been killed in combat. So I knew that law school was not ahead. My academic career at Trinity had been, to put it kindly, checkered. <laughs> Five semesters on the dean's list, but three others that clearly demonstrated I lacked the maturity and responsibility for college. Until I looked it up, I had no idea, none whatsoever, who gave our commencement address. 
nor could I remember a word that he or she had to say. And Michael Michigami, class of 69, I know you're in the same boat. <laughs> so in the short time I've allotted myself today, 15 minutes maximum, I promise you, I'm going to try to provide a few words of guidance that might help you, uh, the class of 2016, as you embark on your career or graduate school or an adventure of another kind. One important point, in fact, the most important point to remember is this. This is the time that you can best afford to sample everything that life has to offer. I have three themes today. They're all interrelated. First and foremost, find a mentor. Find a mentor at your first job. Find a mentor in every job you ever have. Second, make sure to contribute to the public good. It will enhance the world we live in, and it will enhance your own lives. And last but not least, learn to listen. It's a lost art. It's an invaluable skill. When I was 22 years old, I first walked into an American newsroom. It was the evening bulletin of Philadelphia, then the biggest afternoon paper in the nation. Reporters were pounding out stories in their typewriters. Wire machines clacked out the news of the day. Frazzled editors shouted to copy boys to get their stories. Copy down, they bellowed. Cigarette smoke wafted through the air. J.A. Livingston, who is a syndicated economics columnist, summoned me into his spacious office for an interview to become his assistant. It was a glorified job that would require me to review his twice-weekly column, prepare charts and graphs, and handle a variety of clerical tasks, all for the princely sum of $145 a week. Mr. Livingston was 65. I was 22. He had won the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting in 1965. Behind his desk hung the prize itself. During our interview, every time Livingston looked down at his notes, I looked up, trying to read precisely what that Pulitzer said. Every time Mr. Livingston looked up, I looked down. I was awestruck. My first day on the job, I walked over to the graphic arts department to review the chart for Livingston's column with the director, Bob Ware. Bob greeted me, and then he said this, Bill, I hope you'll enjoy your short time here. Most people only last a few months. Mr. Livingston has gone through five assistants in the last year. This talk served as my Miranda warnings. I was determined not to meet the same fate as my predecessors. I vowed to arrive early every day before Mr. Livingston and never never ever to leave the newsroom before he was gone. Our, the work was grueling. It was challenging. Our work week often spans six days, sometimes seven. In that first year, just a year after graduating from Trinity, I can recall traveling to Washington to interview George Schultz, 
who was then the, the Director of the Office of Management and Budget for President Richard Nixon, later Secretary of Treasury, later Secretary of State. Much to my surprise, I actually had some meaningful questions to ask George Schultz. <clears throat> Thanks to Mr. Livingston, I'd learned as much about economics in a few short months as I'd learned about Shakespeare from John Dando. In July 1972, Mr. Livingston left the Bulletin, where he'd worked for 25 years, and joined the Philadelphia Inquirer. I came along as the Class D minor league player to be named later. <laughs> the lesson from my relationship with Mr. Livingston is this, and this is really for all of you out there, make sure to find a mentor, the more demanding, the tougher the taskmaster, the better it'll be for you in the course of your life. Turning now to the present day, I'm going to talk about a man named Jerry Lenfest, who along with the late Lewis Katz, another truly remarkable man, purchased the Inquirer's parent company in May 2014 for $88 million. Lenfest is probably Philadelphia's greatest philanthropist. He has donated generously to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Curtis Institute of Music, his high school, Mercersburg Academy, his college, Washington and Lee, and Columbia University, where he went to law school. But Jerry is not just a philanthropist. He's a visionary. In January, he donated the Inquirer, the Daily News, and our website, philly.com, to the Philadelphia Foundation. At the same time, he transformed the company, a traditional profit-making corporation, into what's known as a public benefit corporation, meaning that the primary goal of our company is no longer maximizing profits, but simply operating a viable business that has a, pr a priority, a strong, unwavering commitment to public service journalism. In making the donation, Jerry did something else. He created a foundation called the Institute for Journalism in New Media, and he, and he endowed it with $20 million and the promise of more to come. The purpose of the Institute is to fund investigative reporting projects for the Inquirer and the Daily News, and at the same time, to undertake research that's going to help our industry as we make this inevitable and um, painful transition from print to the multimedia world. Why did Jerry do this? I'll quote him. What would the city be without the Inquirer and Daily News? Of all the things I've done, he said, this is the most important because of the journalism. So the lesson, lesson two, in Jerry's generosity is this. Try to contribute to the public good, whether you contribute your time or your money or both, and never forget the people and the places that fostered your growth along the way. Never forget them. That brings me to Gene Roberts, the editor who led the Inquirer to 17 Pulitzer Prizes in 18 years, from 1972 to 1990. 
And then Gene won one for himself for a book, a history book, called The Race Beat, about how the press covered the civil rights uh, movement in the South in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Gene was my editor. He was a native son of North Carolina, whose career took him from covering the farm beat for the Goldsboro News Argus to chief of the New York Times Saigon Bureau during the most intensive years of fighting in the Vietnam War. By the time I met Gene in the fall of 1972, he was 40 years old. He'd left a major job as national editor of the New York Times. Many people thought he could ascend to the editor-in-chief's job and joined the Inquirer, a mediocre paper which had never won a Pulitzer Prize, not even one. In his first year as editor, Gene assigned me to the labor beat. It was a subject that he'd covered with tenacity and skill for the Detroit Free Press. Even though the conversation I'm about to relate occurred more than 40 years ago, I can still remember it vividly, almost word for word. In his North Carolinian drawl, Gene explained to me how to cover the beat. And this is what he said, and forgive the drawl, Bill, you got to use your news stories as a spark to ignite everything else. That means your profiles, your features, your news analysis, and your investigative reporting. As I listened and dutifully took notes, I kept thinking that Gene was out of his mind. I was an English major from Trinity College, not a beat reporter. Then Gene ended with a flourish. And just remember the federal mediators. They will be your best sources. I walked out of Gene's office thinking that I should probably apply to English graduate school. <laughs> there is no way that I would ever be able to develop a source, a deep throat like Woodward and Bernstein who at this point were deep into their Watergate investigation. Flash forward one year. I was in the offices of the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service in Center City, Philadelphia, approaching weary negotiators at 5.30 a.m. as they shuffled toward the elevator after they'd finally concluded a tentative agreement on a new contract. I questioned them about the details of the agreement. To a person, they said they'd like to help, but they had to share that information with their members first, not the Philadelphia Inquirer. A few minutes later, federal mediator Bob Kyler, the architect of the agreement, emerged from his office, smiling and smoking his Caminetto pipe. He called me in, cracked open two Michelob beers, 5.30 in the morning. And then he said this, Bill, let me tell you the terms of the new contract, but you can't attribute it to me. Just write down that you got it from uh, one source in the talks. Whoa, I thought to myself, unblanking believable. I have a source. Gene Roberts was right. The lesson in this story is to find someone like Gene 
in your first job, find someone like Jean in every job, and then listen carefully. Listen carefully. Then make sure to believe in yourself as much as the person who is guiding your way. In closing, and I hope I've um, hit the 15-minute mark, I have a request to every member of the class of 2016. It's an important request. As you leave this campus, I would ask you to think of a professor, a coach, or a staff member here at Trinity who has enriched your life over these last four years. I would ask that you write that person a letter saying thank you with specificity for what they've done to help you. That letter will be a gift, a gift that I guarantee will enhance the person to whom you're writing in their life as much as their work has enhanced yours. With that, I congratulate you all. I urge you to savor it. Thank you very much.